If you have your copy of God's Word, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. So we continue our time through the Gospel according to Luke. Uh, we're going to be in verses 18 through 35. Verses 18 through 35. Has there ever been a time when a new restaurant has come to town? All of your friends have been talking about it. Your Instagram feed or Facebook feed is filled with pictures of its food. And so you plan your date, you plan your visit to this new establishment expecting that it be the best thing ever, with the best food you've ever eaten. And lo and behold, you get there and you're very underwhelmed. Anyone? Or maybe you've planned a great vacation, you've seen the pictures, you've heard the reviews, not a single bad word has been said that you have seen or that you have found, and then you travel all the way there, you arrive and your family looks at you and says, is that it? You ever been there? I think about the Griswolds when I think about that. Well, in both situations, and I'm sure there are many more that you can think of that you have either experienced or heard of others' experience, uh, the expectations were not met. What was expected is not what was revealed. And in a similar way, what do you do when Jesus does not meet your expectations? That is, how do you respond when the events of your life do not go the way that you wish that they did or the way that you planned for them to go? When the teachings of Scripture push against the way you want to live or the cultural norms of our day, when things do not turn out the way that you thought they would or thought they should, when your expectations at this point in your life have not yet been met. You believe in the providence of God. You have imperfectly sought the Lord throughout your life but been devout nonetheless. And it just seems like all the pieces of the puzzle have not lined up the way that you envisioned them when you thought about your life. Your expectations have not been met. Well, we see this very thing in today's text. Beginning with John the Baptist, we see a despair that begins to question whether or not Jesus is truly the Messiah the one who has come to rescue his people, and whether or not Jesus can be trusted. Yet we see Jesus respond to these questions in such a way to communicate the truth about who he is, but also serving as a warning, lest we find ourselves walking down the road of despair, of unrepentance and distrust in Christ because He has failed to meet our man-made expectations of Him. And although Jesus may not meet our expectations of how we think He should govern or direct our lives, of the way that we think He should order our steps, Jesus wants His people to know that He can be trusted, that His plan is perfect, and that He will sovereignly shepherd His people into glory with Him in the new heaven and new earth. What Jesus wants us to know is Jesus is exactly who Scripture says Jesus is. 
As we've already seen, He is authoritative. He is all-powerful. He is compassionate. And so much more. And so what we see from this text is that when Jesus does not meet our expectations, whatever those may be, Jesus is still who Scripture says Jesus is. And He can be trusted. If you are able, would you stand as we read Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. The Word of God reads, The disciples of John reported all these things to Him, and John, calling two of His disciples to Him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? But in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your, way, prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and, law, and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Would you pray with me? Father, you have revealed to us in your holy word what you would have us to know about yourself. What you would have us to know about ourselves. And so God, I pray that as we approach this text this morning that you would reveal your purpose in this word for us in both of these things. Teach us about you and teach us about us. Teach us about what you have done for us in Christ. 
And let this word through your spirit sink deeply within us, transforming our hearts, giving us understanding about the truth of Jesus and the truth of ourselves, and giving us hope because of who Jesus is and what He's done, what He will do as He preserves us through this life and for eternity. We pray this in His name. Amen. You may be seated. If you recall last week's sermon text, Jesus worked two great miracles. He healed a sick man who was near death, and then He raised another dead man back to life. And now, and understandably so, when we consider those two things, after Jesus worked these great miracles, particularly raising the dead man back to life, the buzz about Jesus was like it had never been before. It, had, it was spreading into a full-blown craze as people were captivated by who Jesus is and had a longing desire to see more from Him, to see more from this man. And so as word about Jesus was continuing to spread, John the Baptist catches wind about Jesus and what is taking place in Jesus' ministry. Now, we remember John the Baptist from Luke 3. He was the one preaching the need for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. He was the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, the forerunner of Jesus, as John announced that the kingdom of God was at hand. But John's own teaching, his own preaching, what he was proclaiming got him in trouble and it landed him in prison. It landed him behind bars. You see, the thing is this. The Roman authorities had no problem with John preaching that the people of Israel needed to repent. They couldn't care less that John was preaching to the people of Israel that they needed to repent, that they needed to be baptized for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. But when he turned and looked at them, when he turned and looked at the Romans and told them that they also needed to repent, well, that's when John earned his one-way ticket to prison, is when he turned and looked at them and said the same. And so now, John the Baptist is sitting in prison, and he hears all of these rumors about Jesus. He hears all of these murmurings, all of these things going on with the Christ, with Jesus, outside the prison walls. And so that's kind of the context of where we are. And so the first observation I want to make from this text, when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, Beware, beware of unbelief rooted in despair. I know this is small back here. I realized that too late, by the way. So I've heard the critiques, the need to make it bigger, and I apologize. Just listen closely. Beware of unbelief rooted in despair. So John's expectations about Jesus were not being met. In fact, in many ways, Jesus was an unexpected Messiah. When people considered who the Messiah was and what the Messiah was supposed to do, Jesus didn't line up with many, if any, of those things at all. And so as John hears about all that is going on with Jesus, verse 19 tells us that he has summoned two of his disciples and sent them to Jesus asking if Jesus was indeed the one who is to come or shall we look for another? 
Now, we may read this verse, and especially since we can look back in Luke and know of John's birth and the prophecies concerning John and who John was and what John was to Jesus, we can read this story and we may wonder, what in the world has happened to John? He was so bold in proclaiming these things. He was so sure. He saw these miracles even firsthand in the baptism of Jesus Himself. What has happened to John? Because if we look back to three, his ministry was knit very closely with the ministry of Jesus. And now here he is wondering, is Jesus even the Messiah? Based upon what he's hearing from prison. Well, what happened to John? Well, the answer is really quite simple and it's found in his circumstances. He's in prison. Can you imagine the angst that John's soul felt day after day behind bars? Can you imagine the loneliness, the despair of his heart as cold night after cold night after cold night seemed to be unending during his time in prison? John had spoken of the the coming of the more powerful one in terms of judgment. He had promised the crowds at the Jordan that the one coming will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into the barn, and to burn up the chaff with unquenching fire. John had preached and proclaimed and understood the coming of the Messiah as a time of justice and of punishment for sinners. And so from John's perspective, in this Roman prison, his circumstances were not changing much, and from what he was hearing from the outside of Jesus, this wasn't the message that Jesus was preaching at all at this point. This isn't what Jesus was fulfilling at all at this point. Jesus wasn't casting judgment and having his winnowing fork at this moment in time. And so John's expectations of Jesus were not being met. Jesus was not meeting John's expectations. And so John, again, sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus this very question. And we see this in verse 20, along with Jesus' response in verse 21. And so when they approached Jesus, Luke tells us that in that hour, Jesus had healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And to many who were blind, he restored their sight. And having done this, Jesus answered John's disciples to go and tell John what you have seen and heard. And Jesus said, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Perhaps you've picked up on what is happening here. In this, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 34, verses 5 and 6, as well as Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And as one author wrote, these two passages brought together form a symphony of Isianic echoes and in substance a festival of salvation. These are prophecies that are told of the Messiah who was to come. The Messiah was promised to be a miracle maker. The Messiah was promised to be a wonder worker. The Messiah was promised to be the one that would rescue His people from their slavery, that would lift up the poor, that would give sight to the blind, that would heal the diseased, and even raise the dead. And so in this response, 
of Jesus to John's disciples as they look around and as they've seen what Jesus has done, as they've seen what they have heard from Jesus, Jesus is saying to them, yes, John, it is me. Yes, John, it is me. All of these things that were prophesied are happening through me. John, do not give up hope, dear brother. Remember what you've read in your Bible and believe it. Remember what you know. Remember what you've read. Remember what has been revealed in Scripture and believe it. Do not despair. It is indeed me, the one. Church, we must remember that these miracles of Jesus serve as a foretaste of the promise of eternity. These miracles are not too small, and our Jesus is not so weak that He is incapable of doing this. He does give the spiritually blind sight. He does help the spiritually crippled to walk. And He does it for those who are physically ill as well. And not only in this life, but for all of eternity. Do not despair. This is Jesus, the promised one, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, the King of kings. And as Jesus told John's disciples these things, it's almost as if He is binding up John's heart and He's reminding him to remember what you have heard. And He says, I am He. There's no need to look for another he says. And this is the message we still need today. If you're new or if you're newish to the Christian faith, I need to let you in on something that I hope that you've heard before. It's not a secret, it's reality. If you're not new to the Christian faith, you know this, this reality very, very well. There will come times in your life when you face discouragement and despair. It's going to happen. Specifically, because you cannot quite understand what God is doing in your life, what God is doing in your family, and really what God is doing in the world around you. You'll find yourself like John, wondering why God is not intervening or why God is not doing things the way you expected Him to do them. And when this happens... Be on guard that your soul does not start to suddenly believe that the God that is revealed in the Bible is not the God that your experiences have revealed. In that moment, how frequently do, how frequently do our worries whisper to us in one ear, yeah, you've gotten yourself into a mess this time. And then whisper even louder in the other ear, God cannot help you with this one. Despair fertilizes seeds of unbelief that exist in our hearts. And in these times, we must return to what Jesus took John to, the Scriptures. What does Scripture say about God? This is what is true in those moments. Regardless of the circumstances, this is what is true. Again, circumstances change. The Word of God does not. Now, there's a strange ending to Jesus' response to John in this particular section. I want you to see this in verse 23. Jesus says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John, all of these things are happening. 
I am He. I am the one. Based upon what you are seeing, based upon what I am doing, based upon what you are hearing, I am the one. Now, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, what does this mean? Well, let's read verses 22 and 23 together in order to get the full context. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, this is a strange conclusion, I feel like, to what Jesus is saying to John. So what's going on? Well, here's what we need to understand in this week's passage. Luke 7, 18 through 35, and next week's passage, Luke 7, 36 through 50, serve to illustrate what it means to have true faith in Jesus. And so all throughout chapter 7 and 8 of Luke, there are miracles and there are exhortation. Last week, the miracle of healing a man who was almost dead, followed by raising a man from the dead. And these miracles reveal the power of Jesus. But then Jesus follows up like this with exhortations that explain what it means to truly have faith in Him. Therefore, in a sense, this passage serves as a warning against the dangers, against dangers in life that will keep us from true faith. The danger for us is to read the miracles of verses 1 through 17 and say, well, yeah, I'll take that. That sounds great. I'll take that. Give sight to the blind, life to the dead, cleansing of lepers. I'll take that. Sign me up. Who wouldn't, right? I'll have that. Not only sign me up, give me a second helping. Give me a third helping. Give me a fourth helping. I'll feast at the all-you-can-eat buffet of Jesus' miracles. Sounds good. But Jesus is saying, you have to know how to receive me. You can't just have the stuff. You must have me. And you must have all that that brings with it. So these stories serve to say, do you want this Jesus? Then here's the one. Here's the heart that is ready to receive him. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And this is where Jesus drops John in. Once again, why would I be offended by Jesus' miracles? It's not the miracles that are the problem here. It's the mind John had that was detached from this. It was that his life experience was not miracles. John's in prison. His life experience was heartache. He's not seeing these great things happen. And even so, as he sits there in prison, he's getting closer to what ultimately would prove to be a sentence of death, where he would be beheaded. So when it comes to how do I make sure I'm not offended by Jesus today, perhaps we should think this. When I'm offended by how the hand of providence has ordered, when am I offended by the way the hand of providence has ordered my days. When does my heart shift from despair to disobedience to distrust? When does my heart say to God, I don't know what you're doing, to God, you don't know what you're doing? When do I harbor anger towards God for all that He is doing in the marriage or the family over there 
but not in my own? Or where am I offended by how God's Word calls me towards holiness and submission to His Word, even when it flies against so much of my 21st century sensibilities? It stings when family and friends reject our faith, doesn't it? It gets difficult when the Bible's teachings on gender, sexuality, or marriage which are considered backwards and outdated at best in our day, and at worst are considered entirely bigoted and harmful, it stings when those are held over your head by those you love. The danger, the warning for us, is the subtle, stubborn unbelief that this is awakened when the social costs for following Jesus just seem a little too high. And this is what leads to churches departing from the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. And this is what happens with professing Christians who are offended by Jesus. Whether it's in relationships with others who do not understand our faith or despair that follows us around or the dark cloud of providence in which we don't know what God is doing, we should know despair will come. And we must beware of unbelief that follows in its shadow. Secondly, when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, we can easily find ourselves giving way to unrepentance and self-righteousness. Second observation, unrepentance before Jesus is rooted in self-righteousness. I'm going to grab some water real quick. Some of you know I'm just coming off of strep throat, so I'm going to try to persevere here. Thank you. It's my beautiful wife, if you don't know her. She loves me. I'm not sure why. Fifteen years of marriage, I hadn't figured that one out yet. Unrepentance before Jesus that is rooted in self-righteousness. We see this in verses 24 through 30. So there's an interesting turn or shift that happens in verse 24. It's almost like those gathered in the crowd could be saying, what has happened to John? The same question that we began to ask at the first of this. Why has his faith deteriorated to the point that it is in? Because Jesus then addresses the crowd concerning John. At this point, we know these disciples have come and that they've asked Jesus what is going on, but in Jesus' love and in His mercy towards John, His servant, He seems to both affirm John as well as challenge His audience all at the same time. Typical Jesus fashion here. And so Jesus asked the crowd, when they went out to the wilderness to see John, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a reed shaken in the wind? Now this is implying that John was strong, that John was resolved, that he was steadfast. You see, a reed is something that bends back and forth and is whipped by the wind. Jesus says, no, John was standing upright and the winds of opposition told him to be silent on preaching the message of the glory and holiness of God. Yet John stood strong in the face of the strong winds of opposition. He wasn't a reed that could be blown over. He was strong. And then look at verse 25. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? No, you didn't see a man dressed in a nice wardrobe, which is what this implies, masquerading before crowds with great pomp and with great pizzazz. You saw John 
wearing camel hair, right? John wearing discount knockoffs. John wearing simple clothes, and his power was in the Word of God. It wasn't in his appearance. Continue on to the second part of verse 25. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury, they're in king's courts. John wasn't in a king's court, which he's in a, king, a, a castle now in a prison. But what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. Yes, a prophet. A prophet, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. And this is quoting from Malachi 3.1. We see in verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Here's what Jesus is saying to his audience. You were rightly captivated by this prophet, John the Baptist. And whatever you thought of this prophet, he's greater than that. However high you built him up in your mind, he is greater than that. Among those born of woman, none is greater than John. But I tell you that if you understand and follow me, this is greater than what John has seen. Jesus was revealing. John is the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He had a ministry that was similar to many prophets. He had a rugged life. He was pursuing holiness and righteousness no matter the cost. And even suffering at the hands of those that his preaching ministry offended. He was the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And yet Jesus drops verse 28 on us again. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. If you're like me, you read that verse and you think to yourself, well, what in the world is is happening here? Because he follows it up. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. No one's greater than John, but the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater. Well, what does this mean? Well, Jesus is not saying that you or I are of greater importance or have a greater resolve in the faith than John. I mean, many of us just stub our toe and we start questioning what God is doing, right? Jesus is not saying we're moved, that we are more loved by God than John. Jesus is not saying that we have greater faith than John. Jesus is saying that we stand on this side of the redemptive work that He has done. We aren't in prison grasping for news about Jesus. We have seen the fullness of who He is. Jesus, the Son of God, is the promised Messiah. We don't stand a ways away trying to poke our heads through the crowd and see His miracles. No, we are ones who are united with Him by grace through faith, dwelling in the very grip of God. And how are we united with Him? Well, there is a door through which we go from being spectators standing afar to citizens of the kingdom of God, and that door is Jesus. And look at verses 29 and 30. Many in the crowd, tax collectors and others, they declared God certain, sure, just. You see, verse 29, they declared God just as as they had come to God via repentance. Remember John in Luke 3 preaching a message of repentance for the kingdom of heaven has come. So they had come to God via repentance. They confessed their sin against God. And in doing so, they entrusted themselves to Him by faith. But then you have the Pharisees and the lawyers who did not come to Him via repentance. They stood back. 
And you remember, if you remember back when John was baptizing in the river, they stood back. They didn't want to literally or metaphorically get themselves dirty in the water of, waters of repentance. Now, repentance is a term that we throw around a lot in a church setting. Uh, but we may have different understandings of what, or, or different perspectives as to what it means. Maybe you come from a background where to repent is a form of confession, where I tell someone a wrong that I did, or I tell a priest or tell another figure of the wrong that I did, and then it's off my conscience. But then the topic of sin really forces us to pursue this a little further. Because sin, as revealed in Scripture, is something all of us have, and it is much deeper than just a mere wrongdoing. It is the human condition apart from Christ. And so we carry this sin that weighs us down, that rots our souls. And yet we see that repentance is the means by which we come to God. But then we may ask ourselves, okay, well, what, what do I do? Do I just confess it? What do I do with this repentance thing? Well, what we see is that our human condition is one where we need to be made new. And so repentance is the fruit of that work of God in making us new. As God opens our eyes to our need for the Savior and the provision of salvation through Jesus, repentance is the means by which we are transformed by Him. Now as Christians, we must be careful. We must be careful not to get the idea that repentance is something that we do when we first become a Christian and then no more. Sometimes we can think of repentance as kind of like a spiritual bath or a spiritual shower, if you will. We get cleaned up, we admit our faults, and then we start our new life. Well, there is truth to that, make no mistake. Certainly, we come to Christ in repentance and faith. But repentance, repentance is evidence of conversion and evidence of the new birth. But just like it's good for somebody to take a bath or a shower, and I hope we all affirm this, it's bad for them to only take one bath or shower. We need to bathe regularly. And I feel like I'm back in youth ministry saying that to a group of guys at summer camp. Repentance needs to be a regular part of our lives. We do not take this one bath and then walk around in our Sunday best for the rest of our life. No, repentance is actually less like a, maybe less like a shower and more like a car wash to where you're on this like unending conveyor belt. Car washes just freak me out, by the way. I don't know. I get like anxious when I'm inside because I can't get out. I feel trapped. It's kind of like this unending conveyor belt rolling through where God is just doing the work of cleaning you up, of smoothing over the rough edges, of getting up under the wheel wells, of doing this work of exposing our sin and our rebellion against Him all the way until we enter glory. And when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, it's easy for us to fall into this unrepentant sin, relying upon our own self-righteousness for justification, just like the Pharisees and the lawyers. But we need that continual humble coming to Him. Receiving that cleansing as we repent of our sins. 
relying not on our own righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ that's been given to us as revealed in Scripture. And so you have the unrepentance that is rooted in self-righteousness that will keep somebody away from Jesus. And then you have unbelief that is rooted in despair that will keep you away from Jesus. And now, is a, and now we have a summation of all that Jesus is showing us. And we lastly see this, verses 31 through 35, an unwillingness to trust Jesus that is rooted in hard-heartedness. Unwillingness to trust Jesus that is rooted in hard-heartedness. So Jesus gets to the heart of those listening to Him. And they're simply unwilling to come to Him. Let's get to the root of what He says here. Look at the illustration in verses 31 and 32. It says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. Now, if you're a parent, you know those times when kids make their minds up about something. And it doesn't matter what you do for them, what you offer them, what you give them, they're not pleased with it because they've made their mind up, right? Well, this is what Jesus is explaining here in this illustration. He's telling his audience, no matter what has been done for you, you are not pleased. You're never satisfied. And Jesus compares these different types of music to himself and John the Baptist. We've given celebratory music and we've given sad music, but you are not satisfied with either. In verse 33, he says, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread, Drinking no wine. Said another way, John came and he went full Old Testament prophet on you. No wine, eating no bread, a man, to, a man of the land, living out in the wilderness, peach, preaching, repent for the kingdom of, God, of heaven is near you, and you said he has a demon. Not satisfied with that. So then Jesus comes, the Son of God, the Son of Man, eating and drinking. He said, God has come near, has come that you might know Him, that you might enjoy Him. And you say, look at Him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, what Jesus is revealing about His audience and revealing what we need to consider, Jesus is revealing this is the same thing that we need to consider about our own hearts. Ultimately, Unrepentance and unbelief expose unwillingness of the heart to trust in Jesus. When Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, this is what settles in. Instead of God transforming us, unbelief demands that we remake God into what we believe He should be. Unbelief and unrepentance stand out in the spiritual cold, and they refuse to come inside to be warmed by the love of God in Jesus Christ. Now listen, it's easy for us to consider our own lives. Maybe consider some of the mainstream arguments against Christianity or let our own sin be a mask that actually covers up our unwillingness to humble ourselves under the authority of God and His Word. 
We can let our own cynicism, we can let our own lofty and creative arguments, we can let our skepticism mask our unwillingness to humble ourselves under the authority of God and His Word. And I think the latter is much of our issue when it comes to our pursuit of Jesus. We just let ourselves get in the way. But do not let your objections about why the rain has fallen on your life in the manner that it has be the objection that keeps you from the one who holds the cloud in his hand and offers you a smiling face behind the cloudy providence. Yet this is what Jesus reminded those who rejected him when he closed in verse 35. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Well, this is a strange saying. It's a cultural saying of the time that would have been better understood in Jesus' day than ours. But suffice it to say that the wisdom that we employ to make decisions, that's what will guide our lives. Ultimately, it will be revealed in the legacy that we leave and the fruit that is produced from our lives and the children that are born of our lives and what comes from us. They are the outcomes of these decisions. And in one sense, the Christian life is a daily hourly, minute-by-minute question of will I trust the Lord today? What objections do you carry about the path your life has taken that would hinder you from trusting the Lord? How do these objections that you mount keep you from trusting Him with what is still to come in your life? When despair is closing in around you, where do you turn? This is where you and I desperately need the gospel. Because what the gospel reveals to us in this is, in this, is, that this, is the same as Jesus who's addressing those who would stubbornly refuse to come to Him. This same Jesus, not far from now, would be the one who would endure the despair of being forsaken by God His Father as He went to the cross. And in the cross... He earned and achieved the means by which we now come before God and do not have despair. But we can know we are loved, we can know we are cherished, and that we are protected as sons and daughters of His. And in the same way, <clears throat> as we look before our Lord, as we look to the cross, as we see Him suffering, His blood shed, we can know when our hearts are stubbornly refusing to repent of our sin, that because of what Jesus has done on the cross, His blood washes over our sinful hearts. Therefore, we don't have to worry about coming before God, about coming before our Father, about confessing our sins and repenting before Him and asking Him to transform us. We don't have to worry that He's going to look down upon us with scorn and with wrath. No, Christ has endured the punishment for our sins and so because of Him, our Father looks down upon us and brings us into His hand and nourishes us with the warmth of a father as a father would show this to his own child amidst her distress. And we can see our unwillingness that torments us day after day as the things of Christ go down and the concerns of this world are elevated, and we can say in Christ, I can stumble before Him day after day, feeling so unwilling, so incapable in and of myself to walk in obedience to Him, to trust in Him, and yet I find a willing Savior who was able to carry me in my unwillingness.
You do not need a carefully crafted resume or an impressive application to attract his attention. He's already come to us. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. May we come to Christ. And when Jesus doesn't meet our own expectations, may God give us grace to forsake our own stubbornness that would keep us away from our Savior and Lord. Would you pray with me?